Yo, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back. It is a brand new episode of Liam's First Look. And of course, we're looking at UFC Sao Paulo. We're coming off a UFC off week. The UFC schedule has been relentless this year. We've had a lot of back and forth events, but now we had a little bit of time to digest the pay-per-view, a little bit of time to reconvene before this UFC Sao Paulo card, but UFC is back to Brazil. We're back on Saturday night and ready to get after it this weekend. So I'm very excited. We got the sharpest chat in the game ready to rock alongside of us. So thank you to everybody who tunes into the show live on YouTube. Thank you to everybody who catches this show on the replay. And thank you to everybody who tunes in on podcast players as well. Going to make sure that I get this up as soon as possible for you guys after the fact. But with that being said, if you guys are new here, the first look every time we're going to start from the main event and work our way on down the card. This is not my final analysis. This is not my most in-depth analysis of the week. That will come a little bit later on in the process. However, I have been doing research. I have been getting cracking on my own research process for this card, as well as for other upcoming UFC cards. We've got a lot of big events on the horizon, UFC 295, UFC 296. These numbered pay-per-view events oftentimes take a little bit more preparation and due diligence. So I've been cracking away on those, but we also have UFC Sao Paulo. I worked on my performance and odds document. I worked on my social media A side. So we've been uh, cracking away. Still have a lot of tape that I want to run before I finalize some of my reads on these fights. However, I think that I have a pretty good grasp on these fighters. There's only three debutantes, and I'll have a separate video on this channel about those three debutantes uh, later on this week. But I also will talk about the many returning UFC talents that we're very familiar with on this card. So without further ado, let's get into the main event, guys. The first matchup of the night. And we're talking, of course, about Jelton Mahaldino Almeida taking on Derek the Black Beast Lewis, the knockout king of the heavyweight division. Now, Derek Lewis and I have had a rocky relationship because I have been fading him um, for very profitable results right up until that Marcus Rogerio de Lima result ended up with a CLV trophy and nothing else to show for it. Hats off. Congratulations to our guy, Derek Lewis. It was a beautiful knockout win there and one that I didn't see coming. But when I'm looking at Derek's overall trajectory, he's really struggled over his recent run, two and three over his last five fights in terms of his sample size. Has he been losing to quality fighters? Absolutely. But Sergey Spivak, I don't think he landed a significant strike in that fight. He just got taken down relentlessly and easily finished. And you see how Cyril Ghan treated Sergey Spivak, finished him uh, accordingly, you know, treated him with very little regard. Sergey Pavlovich went out there and just steamrolled Derek Lewis, dropped him early. I think Derek would argue it was an early stoppage, but in any case, he hit him hard, clean, fast, right off the whistle, and cashed me a big ticket there. Um, you know, I had a nice, sizable bet on Sergey Pavlovich that night. Um, Tied to Avasa. You know, that was when I started my my fade train um, in earnest on Derek Lewis. Um, you know, I did bet Cyril Ghan against him. I think I even picked uh, Chris Dawkins to beat him outright. But then when you look at where I started making real money, I went five units on Tai Tuavasa plus 170. Thought it was an absurd price. You know, you're talking about a guy um, who just is willing to take a pretty hard shot in Tai Tuavasa. Derek Lewis, if you could criticize him, it's never been that he can't give a good shot. He's always been able to hurt people, take people out, knock them out. He's got tremendous power. He's a violent man. He doesn't have any remorse in the octagon, right? He, no sympathy. He's going to try and take you out. He doesn't care if you're asleep. He'll keep punching. He's that kind of guy, right? He's. I always describe some guys are fighters. Some guys are martial artists. Some guys are athletes. Derek Lewis, a former felon, right? He will do criminal acts to you in the octagon, and he does not have any, uh, you know, qualms about doing so. But on the other side of things, Derek Lewis has always been a guy that's better at giving than he is at taking shots. I feel like 
we've seen that from all the way back in the Sean Jordan fight way early on in his career. You know, he's a guy that can dish out big power. He could give it. But as my guy, best fight picks, Dan Levy says, can he take it too? I think that's a great question to ask. And Derek Lewis, last time out, he didn't have to take anything, right? He just steamrolled Rogerio de Lima before the fight even got going. That was a great strategy. But this guy, Jailton Almeida, number one, he's a young guy. Uh, he's got a pretty damn insane build on him. He's a little bit smaller than Derek Lewis. He has fought in the light heavyweight division, but I have gotten, you know, a plus 185, I believe it was price tag against Nasser Dean, Nasser Dinov back when he was in the light heavyweight division on contender series. This is why contender series can offer you tremendous value opportunities, guys. People don't know Jelton Almeida until they know him. Now that they know him, he's minus 500 in every fight. He's minus 500 at heavyweight. He's been a huge uh, favorite in all of his UFC bouts, but he was an underdog on the contender series. He was a lesser known guy at the time. Galpao de Luta, not as well known of a team, but now they're starting to put together a little uh, stable of UFC level fighters. They're definitely putting together a quality game. And you see Jelton Almeida, what made me bet him on the contender series back in the day? His jiu-jitsu was phenomenal, right? I watched matches of his. I watched jiu-jitsu matches that he had on YouTube, on the Brazilian regional scene. He was a phenomenal grappler. He's very strong. You guys can see, it doesn't take a genius looking at Jelton Almeida to say, wow, this guy is a phenomenal athlete. He's built like uh, you know, a, a Greek god, right? He just has this insane uh, muscular build to him, a, a different physicality than most of his opponents. When you look at the heavyweight division, the fat percentage, and again, I'm not trying to be uh, disparaging. I'm just trying to be uh, realistic about our expectations. The fat percentage, the body fat percentage is higher. Just on average, it, it only makes sense. But this is a guy um, that has a much lower body fat percentage, I would say, than the average heavyweight by a significant factor. So I think his athleticism, his youth, uh, and the fact that this is a home match for him in Brazil, all big factors that favor a guy like Jailton Almeida. The other thing is Derek Lewis has always said, I'm the best blue belt in Texas. The best blue belt in Texas doesn't win many jiu-jitsu tournaments in Sao Paulo. Uh, I'll tell you guys, um, you know, Brazil, elite world-class jiu-jitsu. America also has elite world-class jiu-jitsu. But I don't know that those classes are things Derek Lewis has taken advantage of for his whole career. So even if he starts at 35, 36, 38, whatever it is, taking his career super seriously and really trying to put in that time and that work on the mats, I don't know that he can close the gap with a guy like Jelton Almeida, who's very natural with his positioning, who's very sound in how he operates on the ground. Now, in terms of a heavyweight fight on the feet, Obviously, Derek Lewis can win this fight by knockout. He's a tremendous knockout threat. He's got a good ability to burst back up to his feet. I think people that have grappled before, uh, you know, know that there's always people like this in any grappling room that don't have conventional skill, right? It's not like they're doing the best framing with their elbow and their knee and they're making the right connection. It's not about that always. Sometimes it's about the fact that they're a freak athlete and they don't want to be held down. Uh, in wrestling, we say bottom is an attitude position right? Half of it is about, yeah, I know how to get up, but half of it is about saying, you're not going to hold me down no matter what. I'm going to keep getting back up to my feet. I will not be deterred. That is an attitude. That is not a skill, right? That's not a, uh, you know, I'm going to move this hand here to this position. It's not a technical um, positioning problem, right? Derek Lewis does a lot of explosive athletic get-ups. Uh, he just bursts back up to his feet. But a lot of that stuff works on lower level practitioners. And I do think that a guy like Jailton Almeida is going to try and control position, make Derek work harder than he is working in these exchanges, especially if it gets to the mat. So for Derek Lewis to win this fight, I think he's got to keep this fight upright. I think he's got to try and land knockout shots. We've seen Shamil Abdurakimov land one really nice um, 
overhand right, I believe it was. He catches a kick and then snaps off an overhand right. Jalton Almeida seems to have a pretty solid chin from everything I've seen so far. So you're inviting some inherent volatility in a heavyweight matchup. Derek Lewis is a massive star, biggest star on the card by a huge margin, 2.2 million Instagram followers. The UFC loves this guy. He's been around for a long time. And by the way, when the Francis Ngannou sweet stakes was opening up, Derek had a chance to go try and look elsewhere, right? But instead he re-signed with the company. I believe it was an eight-fight deal. Shout out to my guy, Cashville Reek. It says Liam with the fresh cut. You know that, brother. Had to come back uh, looking fresh after a week off. Uh, and when we're talking about this fight on paper, you know, I think we got two guys trending in opposite directions overall. Big bounce back win for Derek Lewis last time. Great, you know, job saving performance, uh, kept him relevant in the division. But did it tell me that all the things that we had seen uh, in the fights prior couldn't become a problem again? Let's also talk about the fact that Derek Lewis been submitted twice in his career, one and two career to the submission. Like I said, landed no significant strikes and got submitted by Sergey Spivak. I think Jailton Almeida would do bad things to Sergey Spivak. That's a personal opinion. Um, you know, Taito Avasa, another guy where if you put Jailton Almeida in there with Taito Avasa, based on what we just saw with Volkov, would y'all not think that Jailton Almeida is probably going to do whatever he wants on the mat to Taito Avasa? I, I think he probably would do that. So when I'm looking at this, you know, there's opportunities for Derek. He's got that flying knee up the middle, you know, but I just think of Jelton Almeida as a pretty smart guy who's going to try and push him against the fence, get a hold of him, get him to the mat. And I think once it, he hits the mat, I do think it will be elementary. Uh, I think that Jelton Almeida is very strong and very smart in terms of how he positions himself relative to his opponents. I do think he's a handful uh, for almost anybody in this heavyweight division. The heavyweight division overall, the grappling skill is very low. So when you have high-level grappling, you could really leverage that. I think at light heavyweight, he would be a very good fighter. I think he could compete with anybody, uh, Jelton Almeida, that is. But I also think that when you go to the heavyweight division, the average skill level is so much lower, and I think that that's what he's been exploiting. I think that's the reason he has not moved back down in weight, uh, personally speaking. So uh, this is a, a fun fight, good action fight on paper. I would be stunned if this fight saw the distance, personally. Um, so I think that this is a Jelton Almeida win. I think it's a Jelton Almeida finish. I wouldn't be altogether stunned if Jailton just postured up and threw some ground and pound, but he's a guy that will definitely preference the submission. So I expect Jailton Almeida to win this fight. I think he gets the submission in the first three rounds here. Um, and that's as, as uh, long and short as I'll be with this breakdown, you know, should be a fun fight. Um, but I just don't like this matchup for Derek Lewis. And he's normally struggled uh, against strikers, but I think this is one of the best grapplers he's faced in the UFC in his long history. And I think that he's, probably nearing the end of his run uh, as a top guy, whereas Jailton Almeida has just arrived. So I think that this is a Jailton Almeida um, slamboree. And last time out against Jairzinho Rosenstrike, he had the big power. He had the, uh, you know, knockout threat and the ability. And uh, that was all that was discussed in the lead up. And then it just ended up being a very quick and fundamental win for a guy like Jelton Almeida. So I think Mahalagdino is going to strike again in Brazil, and I think he's going to do it uh, inside the distance. Next up, we've got Gabriel Bonfim taking on Nicholas Dalby. And I was dead wrong last time. I thought Trevin Giles was going to at least be able to compete with a guy like Bonfim because he's got a long jab, because he's got some decent guillotine fundamentals himself. He's not a, a useless grappler. And he got absolutely audited in that fight. Bonfim looked like a million dollars. And so the stock on Bonfim is probably at an all-time high, right? Um, you don't want to buy stocks at their all-time high, but he could continue to impress people in the UFC. Nicholas Dalby, 
this is something that stood out in my preliminary research, guys. He's an incredible underdog. Like Nicholas Dalby has way overperformed as a dog in the past. Uh, I laid a big bet uh, on Daniel Rodriguez. I thought he won that fight as well. But this guy, when it goes to the cards, he's just got a way of greasing it, making it close, making it very competitive. But I also think of Dalby as a guy who's not very athletic. And what I had said in the lead up, um, you know, when somebody asked me about this fight a couple of weeks ago, you know, how do you feel about Dalby here? What do you think? And do I think that from a money line standpoint, you could you could talk yourself into Dalby? Yeah, absolutely. But I also said, you know, there's no amount of steroids, um, you know, that you could give Jesse Ronson, uh, in my opinion, where he's going to go out there and easily submit Bonfim. Uh, whereas he was able to go out there and easily submit Dalby. Um, and so I think that that's a problem. You know, I think Bonfim is, again, a guy who's probably trending in the right direction. He's got that home field advantage, five-fight win streak within the organization, uh, or excuse me, uh, three-fight win streak within the organization, five-fight win streak overall, according to Tapology. Nicholas Dalby has won four, he's four and one over his last five fights, but split decision over Warley Alves, um, unanimous decision over Claudio Silva, where I believe he lost a round and Claudio Silva is a notorious gasser. Um, Muslim Salikov looking a little bit long for the tooth there lost to Tim means who looked good in his last fight. So take nothing away from that. And then he again, beat D rod in a fight that I didn't think he won. So for me, Bonfim is just a way more dangerous fighter. You know, Dalby, he would have to win this fight on the cards. I think more often than not to get the win. And I don't think that that's going to happen at a very high clip. We're in Brazil. I think the Bonfim brothers are potential future stars for the UFC. I think they like investing in these guys, and they're both on the card together. When Ismael Bonfim was on the card by himself, I was like, it's Fade City. But now they're back together. They're in Brazil. Sao Paulo, stand up. I think Gabriel Bonfim's taking that neck home with him. Uh, I think he's got a fantastic guillotine. I love a guy with a good guillotine fundamental series, and I think he's going to get the uh, the choke. So give me Gabriel Bonfim to get the win here over Nicholas Dalby. I'm rolling with chalk in the top two. Um, but alas, next up guys, we got Rodrigo Nascimento taking on Dante Mays. And this is a fight where, you know, I don't like either of these guys. I just level with you guys off the rip, you know, nothing personal against them. I wish them both well in life. God bless them both. But it's just like, from an MMA betting standpoint, these are not guys that I'm looking to get behind at a very high clip. You got Dante Mays. Uh, everybody was talking him up, talk of the town before that Hamdi Abdel Wahab fight. And Hamdi went out there and got the job done. Um, obviously, overturned to a no contest due to some extracurriculars on that bout. But uh, either way, that loss to Hamdi, it was a horrible look. You know, he's going for takedowns, flat backing himself, just doing things that were comically bad. Um, the Augusto Sakai loss did not age well. I believe Augusto Sakai uh, was cut off of a win. Um, Andre Arlovsky, that was a good, you know, bounce back. Go out there, get the win. Um, definitely a, a nice win for Dante Mays, but that was a guy who is a, a much older fighter who's been around for a very long time. His chin has come and gone with the wind at times throughout his career. So with all due respect to the legend there and the former champion, Andre Arlovsky, you know, he's just not the same guy at this point in his career. Now, Rodrigo Nascimento is running it back here. He actually beat Dante Mays via rear naked choke in about back in 2020. And now they're going to do it again. You know, they're similar age. But I could just tell you guys the truth. I've always thought Rodrigo Nascimento stunk. Um, you know, I bet Chris Dawkins against him. I think that's the only time I've ever bet on one of his fights. Let me pull up my previous bets on betmma.tips. But I believe, guys, that I've never bet on uh, Rodrigo Nascimento. I think I bet the under against uh, Alain Badeau. And then I think I bet this outright uh, on Chris Dawkins as a plus 220 underdog. That's right. Uh, half a unit 
against him. And that was a good spot. I've actually done a really good job capping Chris Dawkins fights for whatever reason uh, over the years. But let's pull up my results on Nascimento here. Yeah, I'm 2-0 on Nascimento fights, so I haven't lost yet. No bets on the fight so far this weekend. Let's take a look at my Dante Mays betting results over time. See if there's anything to be learned there. So on the one hand, I have not lost a bet on Rodrigo Nascimento. I've not won a bet on Dante Mays. 0 for 3. I bet Josh Parisian small against him. I bet Dante Mays small against Augusto Sakai. Both bets for less than a unit. And I bet uh, Dante Mays wins in round one against Augusto Sakai for a very small amount as well. So when you're looking at these guys, I haven't been very big on either of them, right? If I'm betting Josh Parisian against you at plus 174, it tells you that I think that you stink. Um, and I think that Mays kind of does stink, right? He just hurt John Jones. So there's narrative nation, right? The power of Dante Mays uh, coming into this fight. For me, it's just a plus money or pass situation. You know, dog or pass situation clearly here because I think both of these guys are horrible. Uh, who do I think the UFC would prefer to win? Well, I think that's quite clear. You know, Rodrigo Nascimento, he's a Brazilian guy. It's in Brazil. He's still a young enough guy, 30 years of age, working with American top team. But if he's going to continue to rattle off split decision wins against Alir Latifi and Tanner Bozers of the division, it's going to be a wrap for him. Um, they're they're going to cut you off your first loss if that's the case. Um, the loss to Dacus, you know, he kind of just got overwhelmed early. He was getting hit with the very clean hand speed of Dacus. Dacus had his confidence at that time at an all-time high. So I think that you could almost forgive him for that. But the way the Alain Badeau fight was going, just a horrible look. The guy was very competitive with Alain Badeau um, in the early going and, and looked like he was starting to panic a little bit again. Alir Latifi on the back nine of his career. Tanner Bozer has moved down to 205 pounds. So these aren't names that are jumping off the page at you as, man, I really got to get behind this guy. If he didn't have a previous win over Dante Mays, this fight would probably be a pick, uh, in my opinion. So you've got three, three, and one no contest in the UFC, Nasiment, or uh, Dante Mays against Nascimento, who's three, one, and one no contest in the UFC. So these guys, Neither one of them has really distinguished themselves, but the slightly younger guy who's training at the slightly better team in American top team, I would probably, um, you know, lean with Nascimento, but I'd make him minus 130 uh, or so. And let me just look. I believe last I checked, he was like over two to one. Antail Mays and Rodrigo Nascimento. Yeah, so Nascimento, you're looking at about a minus 185, minus 200, depending on where you're looking, plus 170, the best comeback on Mays. So I think this has to be a Mays or pass situation. Um, you know, you don't want to be holding a minus 200 while Mays is power humping your guy in the face, uh, as has happened to me before. So I just think that this is a, a worthy pass or uh, potentially an underdog spot, but I just wouldn't lay chalk with Nascimento. I kind of think he's fraudulent, personally. Next up. We've got Kayo Barajo taking on Abus Magomedov. And listen, I picked Abus Magomedov to beat Sean Strickland. So, um, you know, I look pretty stupid there, right? But the reason I thought so was what we saw in round one. I just felt like he was going to come out there, be very aggressive, blast Sean with kicks in the face and get after him with the hands. And he was landing a lot. But then he starts going for takedowns. And by the end of the first round, I'm like, man, this guy is literally gassing out in the first round. And He's been a guy that has been spotty. He's lost as a big favorite before, and he's also just not had the cardio to go. He's not had the chin to endure some big shots at times in his career, despite otherwise having a good record. When he's fought step-ups in competition, he just hasn't really looked um, like the best of all worlds, right? Kyle Barajo has been a absolute money train for me. 
uh, a guy I've been betting since the contender series, bet him by knockout um, against uh, Jesse Murray. I think the guy's name was a uh, poor, poor guy. That was a brutal matchmaking for Jesse Murray. Uh, but un- unfortunately, right. Kyle Barajo just had a few decisions off the rent and it kind of made people think like, man, maybe this guy isn't as fun as we all thought, you know, um, Godzi Omar Godzi gets the win there. Uh, that was a fight where, you know, I wasn't really blown away by what I saw, but in any case, I thought that he's a smart guy. You know, he shows that fighting nerds mentality, right? He takes the easiest method of victory when he can, but it was starting to get to him, right? He went out there and he went against Armin Petrosian, got the win in that fight, difficult fight, measured fight, fought a good performance, fought a savvy fight there. It was a close fight, but gets the win, unanimous decision, no fault there. Mahmoud Muradov, big, awkward guy. You know, a guy who's been putting in a lot of work on his wrestling and his grappling. I think people give him a lot of shit for that fight. But then you look at the fact that Mahmoud Muradov went out there and attempted like 13 or 14 takedowns in his next fight. The guy really has been putting in work on the wrestling and grappling front. I think he deserves some credit and respect for that because he got audited by GM3, which I predicted before the fight. So in any case, you look at the last one out. Kyle Braho said, I'm going to make a point of finishing this guy. I will finish. And Mihal Olichajic's been around the UFC for a long time. He's not a great grappler, but he's a dangerous striker. He's a pressure forward guy. He's a guy a lot of people don't want to be trading with. And Kyle Barajo, I thought, approached that beautifully. He got the big win, and he really validated the UFC's faith in him, right? Goes out there. They said, man, it's not enough to get the wins. You're doing a good job. All unanimous decisions, right? Not split decisions, not leaving it to chance, but we really want to see you close the show here. Goes out there against a, a seasoned guy gets the win, gets the finish. So now he's getting a fight against a guy who's got some prominence, right? A guy who was just a headliner for the UFC in Abus Magomedov and a guy that fought the champion. But what did we learn about him in that fight? Maybe he didn't have what they thought he had, right? They tried to fast track him. I had compared him at the time to Yuri. When does a guy go from fighting, you know, uh, once or twice in the organization to in a potential title eliminator? Uh, it's not very common, right? Yuri Prohaska had a handful of fights before he's in a title fight. It doesn't happen very often in the UFC. Izzy had, I think, four or five or six, right? It's like most of the time you really got to earn it. You got to get a couple solid wins underneath your belt. And Abus Magomedov got shot right up to the top. He got a big opportunity and he got exposed a little bit. So he trains with good guys, right? He's got the wrestling shoes on on Instagram. I did a little bit of stalking in that regard, right? I looked at what he's doing, but Kyle Barajo is a smart guy. He's a a very savvy striker, I think, defensively in the early going. I think he's going to do what he needs to do to get this guy tired. I think he's going to try and grab a hold of him. I think he's going to try and push him into the fence. I think he's going to use his head positioning. I think he's going to punch him in the body. I think he's going to knee him in the body. And I think he's going to try and wear on this guy for the first round. We saw in that last fight, it wasn't a first round finish. It's a second round finish. He's not a, a guy who's going to go out there and force it. But I think that Abus Magomedov is a guy, unfortunately, based on what we've seen so far, he can always change my impression this weekend. But what we've seen so far is that if you push him, if you pressure him, if you don't go down early, if you don't give it up easy, and if you don't give up easy takedowns, which I don't see Kyle doing any of those things, then he can start to fall apart mentally. He can get hurt, cracked on the feet, and he can start to make bad decisions. And I honestly felt like Sean Strickland could have easily outgrappled him if he had decided to because he was already broken in that fight um, by the time that Sean laid on the, the ground and pound. So he's making a, a pretty quick turn here to go fight in Sao Paulo against a guy that I think that the UFC would like to invest in. Um, I think that this is a uh, Kyle Barajo spot, and I think he's going to finish Abus Magomedov in round two or three. So give me Kyle Barajo uh, to get the win here. Uh, but 
admittedly, guys, staying off the rip, biased as shit. Uh, never, I don't think I've lost a bet on Kyle on the money line uh, at this point, and I've, I've done very well betting his fights uh, on the prop side of things as well. So for me, he's just been a, a very profitable fighter, and um, until I'm proven wrong, you know, I think he's a very sound guy. I'm not going to um, give up on my read there. So jiu stop Brazilian hate. That's what we're looking to do. <laughs> Shout out to everybody who's rocking with us in the chat, guys. Want to say, seeing some very sharp names, some uh, Patreon supporters. Want to shout out specifically everybody who's rocking with us on Patreon. Thank you guys for the support. It means the world. I did send out uh, days ago the debutante report, the social media A-side report, and the previous performance in odds range. A bunch of documents that are trying to help you get prepared, whether you're with me or against me on any one play. It's a lot of research and work that goes into it to try and help see other people win. Uh, so thank you to everybody who's rocking with us and shout out to the people in the chat, really sharp input here throughout the way. Shout out to our guy fresh. He says, what's good. Shout out to our guy, Dixon. Shout out to Daniel, uh, says, let's go Liam. Appreciate you, Daniel, Kristen as well. Um, in the building. So a lot of regulars, Matt R is in the building. Chris V is in the building. Appreciate you guys all for rocking with us. Thank you all so much. Uh, it's a huge blessing and shout out to our guy, Cashville Rican says Liam's Patreon is lit AF. Come join the Liam mafia. It would be an absolute blessing to have you on board. And I'm always available on there. Questions, comments, concerns, please uh, never hesitate. Always feel free to reach out. So with that being said, guys, let's move to the next fight here where we've got Adolfo Vieira taking on Armin Petrosian. And this is one where I'm conflicted. I like both these guys, you know, um, I really like Adolfo. I think he's a great fighter. Uh, the black belt hunter. I respect the hell out of his game. I, I model a lot of how I approach jujitsu with a lot of what he does. You know, at his best, Adolfo Vieira normally goes step one, step two, step three, and it's over. I'm talking about his jujitsu on the mat, purely takedown, pass, uh, dominant position, submission attack, finish. That's it. It's, it's never going back in the progression. It's all linear. And I think that that is what makes his game beautiful. But he's also a guy that if you've ever seen him, he looks like a muscle hamster, right? He's built like a brick shithouse. He's got all muscle, all vascularity, and that makes it difficult to sustain a cardio pace for 15 to 25 minutes. So I think that with that being acknowledged, you know, he does have a difficulty in MMA figuring out what his pacing strategy is going to be. Should he go for 20 takedowns or should he go for, you know, a striking base performance on the feet, punctuating rounds with takedowns. He is still in the midst of figuring that out, in my opinion. So what I want to do is I want to hear what Adolfo is thinking about this fight. I want to hear what his approach is going to be. Because I think the best way to beat a guy like Armin Petrosian is to take him down and try to submit him as quickly as possible if you're Adolfo Vieira. I think when Adolfo Vieira is fresh, the biggest level gap in this fight by far is the grappling, where I think that, uh, you know, Armin Petrosian has shown very sound submission defense so far in the UFC, but he has not shown the most prolific grappling game. He mostly waits for his opponents to tire or waits for his opponents to make mistakes, tries to be very defensively disciplined, but he puts himself in some bad positions. He's been taken down since the contender series. So when I look at those things on paper, I do say to myself, you know, this is an opportunity for a guy like Adolfo Vieira, who has one of the most dominant ground games when he gets on top to get a takedown early and to finish somebody in the first round. And he would have to leverage his full athletic skill set. He would have to probably sell out for the first round finish. And the danger is if he does that, he will be left out there to get killed. 
because Armin Petrosian tends to keep a pretty good pace throughout the 15 minutes, and he tends to be dangerous even late on into fights. He does slow down a little bit. He's a big guy, but he's a guy that can normally keep a pretty consistent pace, and I've cashed him before as an underdog. I bet him. I believe it was a plus 165 price tag. I'm now trying to pull up my previous bets. Uh, I know that I bet him against Gregory Rodriguez. So let me look at my Armin Petrosian bets. I lost betting one unit on Kalen Kolev on the Contender Series, but I bet two units at plus 150 on Armin Petrosian and cashed that one by the skin of my teeth against Gregory Rodriguez. And I bet Kyle Barajo for 2.8 units at minus 140. So overall, 4.12 units of profit at a 70% ROI on Armin Petrosian uh, money lines. But on the props, I've done terribly. So basically, when you look, I'm I'm having a, a pretty decent time guessing who's going to win these Armin Petrosian fights, but I haven't always had the best time, um, you know, trying to sort out how it's going to happen. When I think he's going to finish, he doesn't. And he's gone to decision now one, two, three, four times in a row in the UFC against the primary striker in Christian Leroy Duncan, against an all-arounder in AJ Dobson, against Kyle Barajo, a primary grappler. And against Gregory Rodriguez, an all-arounder, he went to decision in all of those fights. Um, most of them were very competitive. So he's a guy that's kind of just been in there for every fight. Um, you know, overperformed definitely compared to uh, his expectations in the UFC. But that Kolev fight, Kolev gassed out, you know, experienced the cardio death. Um, Kyle Barajo just had the pace to, to go for the full 15. So he just audited him with the grappling. So for me, I think that um, that that's a spot that I, I'm definitely looking at. Um, Dixon says going life and death with Cody Brundage was an indictment on Vieira's MMA career and future. I feel you, but I also think that that's a, it's a tricky subject, right? Because I thought Treshawn Gore is clearly a better fighter than Cody Brundage, but then Cody Brundage hit him with a big shot and the fight was over. You know, it's like, this is MMA it's that you could still have a lot of inherent volatility and Hadolfo. I think he showed a lot of heart in that fight. You know, I think he showed some toughness. I also think that uh, Brundage showed himself to be a bonehead. That's for sure. But four and two record in the UFC for Adolfo. Chris Curtis, guys, has historically good uh, submission defense. I know that Kayo is a good submission grappler, brother. I think he's a very good submission grappler. If it was a pure jiu-jitsu match, Adolfo Vieira would absolutely own Kayo Barajo. I, I truly believe that. And I say that with all love and respect. Adolfo Vieira in the gi Savage, out of the gi, savage, right? Like he is a legit world-class black belt, period. Point blank, not for MMA, period. But cardio makes uh, cowards of men, right? He was dominating uh, in terms of the grappling positions against Fluffy Hernandez. But then what happened? He got exhausted and he got submitted. So Kyle Barajo, very good grappler, but I do not think he is, he is quite of the same level as Adolfo Vieira. Uh, and I don't think that's a hot take either, uh, Dixon. I, I think that... In terms of the grappling community, I think they would mostly agree with that. Uh, Adolfo Vieira is an absolute legend of grappling. Um, Vieira is the best submission grappler he's ever faced. And I agree. Um, I agree with that. And here's the other thing. I think it, it, it works in two different ways, right? Kyle Barajo, super disciplined, right? Controls positions, wrist rides, gets to the back, controls from the seatbelt. He'll hold on to you. He doesn't care. He'll he'll let 15 minutes ride out. Adolfo doesn't always have the cardio to do that. Like I said, he's kind of a muscle hamster, right? He's built, um, you know, very muscly for the division. But those guys, if they get a squeeze on you, if you see the squeeze he generates when he gets that head and arm choke against um, Saperbeck, Safarov, and these guys, I'm not saying they're the highest level, but the squeeze generating, look at his back. 
it's like a vice grip. It's a absolute um, terror. So I think that we've seen two guys that are very good grapplers in Gregory Rodriguez and Caio Barajo both have good positions, but then not be very insistent on attacking for a finish because they knew I might have to fight this guy the whole 15 minutes. I'm going to have to control my breathing. I'm going to have to be smart here. And I think, again, Hadolfo Vieira, he's got choices to make here. I think if he just plays this out on the feet, it might look close, but I don't think he can win that. I think it'll look like the Chris Curtis fight. But I think that if he gets on top in the early going, when he's fresh and this other guy's fresh, Adolfo Vieira is way better than him at grappling. So that's what makes it an interesting fight. That's what makes it compelling. If it was still plus money on Adolfo, I would be more tempted. Now it's a pick em price. That seems so somewhat appropriate to me. You know, it's a grappler versus striker fight. I think the ABC say always, always bet on cardio. So I could see this being Armin Petrosian, you know, minus 115, minus 105. But it just seems to me like a very close fight on paper. And I think Adolfo Vieira, if he's getting takedowns, this fight looks like probably a really dominant Adolfo fight. But if he's not, then his face is going to get butchered and he's going to wear a lot of damage in this fight. We know he's got heart and toughness, but he also has dealt with exhaustion. He's dealt with uh, panicking in fights. So laying chalk on Adolfo is something I can't really advocate either, uh, despite being a huge fan. So both these guys, good fighters, fun scrap here uh, on paper. I think Adolfo Vieira has a lot more to gain with this fight, but I think both of these guys are going to put on a hell of a scrap. So looking forward to it. Shout out to our guy, Ghost, as well. Says, hello, Liam. Welcome aboard, Ghost. Thanks for being here. Next up, we've got Ismael Bonfim taking on Vince from hell, Pichel. And guys, this is why I do the previous performance and odds range document every week, because you learn these little things uh, that are surprising. You know, every week I find myself a little bit surprised uh, by something that I come across in my research. So, for example, let's talk about the previous performance and odds range for Vaughn Theme and Vince Bichelle in the UFC. I think people are going to be really surprised here. So, Ismail Bonfim is 0-1 as a favorite for a minus 100% ROI. He was minus 300 against Benoit Saint-Denis. If y'all listened um, to the, the show at the time... Uh, I was big on Benoit Saint-Denis. I, I thought that the plus 250 by his name simply made no sense uh, heading into that matchup. Vince Pichel, on the other hand, guys, 4-1 and one as a UFC underdog, 118.6% ROI here. He is a massive underdog in this spot. So in terms of the matchup, I think this is a really tough fight on paper for Vince Pichel. Uh, why? He's starting to age out, in my opinion, of this lightweight division. He's 40 years of age. He's going to be 41 years of age very soon. Um, if you guys have listened to his recent interviews, um, he's talked about the fact he dealt with injuries. You know, he was kind of criticizing Tony Ferguson, maybe not being as as uh, sensitive to his injuries in training as he needed to be, right? And we always, my, my coach always talks about it. it's not about who's uh, best. It's about who's left. Um, you know, when it comes to these combat sports, you got to be healthy in order to train, in order to compete. And I think that a guy like Vince Bichel, his health is declining. Um, you know, I talk about an angle long-term frequently on the show, which is a younger fighter with more professional experience. Um, now if it's at an underdog price, then I want to fire, right? Obviously Ismael Bonfim is heavily favored here, but that makes sense to me based on my metrics. You look at the fact that it's a 13-year age gap. That's very highly predictive for a Bonfim win. Um, on top of that, these guys have a very similar size dynamic. When you look at the Benoit Saint-Denis fight, why did I think Benoit Saint-Denis was going to win that fight? There's a number of reasons. Um, when you look, I think that number one, you see an Ismail Bonfim that his ego 
gotten in the way of a better performance against Benoit Saint-Denis. I picked Benoit, but I still didn't think it was going to be that uh, wide of a result. He got kicked in the body and his ego said, give me another one. You know, he wanted to call him on say, Hey, that didn't hurt me, but he didn't actually have an answer. So when Benoit Saint-Denis said, okay, and just return strike, 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 he just got overwhelmed. And I think he was badly hurt and compromised before the fight ever went to the ground. When you look at Bonfim's record, the reason that I thought there was value on him against Terrence McKinney was he was a plus money underdog. I thought that he was going to be difficult for McKinney to outgrapple. And I thought on the feet, he was going to be the superior fighter. He was clearly the superior fighter, I thought, between him and McKinney in that fight. One of the rare fights where McKinney didn't actually get off on a lot of offense and beat him up. I think that was McKinney in part not having the confidence to go pull the trigger. But I also think that Bonfim really approached that fight smart. He waited, gassed him out into the second round, and then got the finish. I called Bonfim, Bonfim KO2 in that spot. I was very happy with the result. I bet on Bonfim there. So Bonfim is a guy that I have been having good betting results, um, you know, since the contender series, I think I bet quarter unit on his opponent via sub on the contender series did not cash that bet, but he had three submission losses. They're all justifiable, right? He lost to Adriano Marais, very good fighter from one. He lost to um, Hanato Moicano, and that was his most recent submission loss all the way back in 2014. So this guy, Bonfim, it looks like he's got these liabilities on the ground because he just got submitted in his last fight. But even then, like, did he look like a bad grappler or did he look like a guy who got rocked really badly and then just got finished on the mat? So for me, I think Vince Pichel is probably going to lose here, unfortunately. Um, I could understand why people will get to the number. Like I said, the the data backs it up from a historical odds performance. You know, uh, Vince Pichel has just not been expected to win many UFC fights and he's continued to do so. However, I think that a lot of his wins as a dog came earlier on in his UFC run. Um, so for whatever that's worth, he hasn't been supremely active. And I do think that unless he's getting takedowns in this spot, he's probably going to wear a lot of damage. So a couple things to worry about on that side. But I'm going to take Bonfim here very reluctantly. No chance you'll ever catch me laying minus 450 with this uh, of the Bonfim brothers. I do think that Gabriel is the premier uh, Bonfim brother of the two. But we will have to wait and see. Question from our guy Dixon. He says, Liam, do you expect Bonfim to start wrestling and grappling exchanges at all? Um, no, I don't think so. I think he's probably going to strike. Uh, I think he prefers to strike for sure. So I think it's probably going to look a little bit like that contender series fight. Um, I think if somebody's mixing in the wrestling and the grappling attempts, it's more likely to be Vince Bichelle. But we've also seen Vince Bichelle taken down a number of times. So could it could, uh, go either way in that regard. But I think that Vince Michelle is going to be looking for takedowns. That's my honest opinion. Next up, we've got Elves Brenner taking on Esteban Ribovix. And I was gutted last time out. I, I did a whole write-up about why I thought Elves Brenner was a live underdog, and then I didn't end up pulling the trigger. Um, really foolish. But he has now cashed twice as a plus 500 underdog in the UFC from Shootbox, Diego Lima. Um, you know, eked one out over Zubaira Tohugov. Very close split decision in Abu Dhabi, I believe, or was that in uh, Australia? That was in Australia, excuse me. So in Australia, he was able to get the win over Zubaira Tohugov. Split decision there, very close victory. But that win over Guram Kutitaladze was the really impressive one, right? Guram, I thought, had some... Um, you know, signs of, uh, 
problems leading into that fight. You know, he hadn't been supremely active. Um, you know, he'd been in some questionable fights. He, he'd slowed down to what I said was Guram in the first round is like crazy good. But like by the seven and a half minute mark, he's like a very average lightweight. And that's what I think we we really saw exposed in that fight. In round one, he landed a lot of great shots, did a lot of damage. But by round three, it was Els Renner's fight uh, to win or lose. He got the win there. Excellent job. Next time out, he's got Esteban Ribovic, guys. This is another young guy, very skilled, 27 years of age, uh, 20, or excuse me, 12 and one record uh, overall as a professional. Beat Kemwella Kirk last time out. Um, fine win there. Uh, lost to Loic Radzibov. Both of his fights in the UFC have gone to decision, but he got an impressive knockout over Thomas Paul in very rapid fashion on the contender series. So he's a guy that definitely has um, some skills. You know, the Loic Radzibov fight, I believe, was on short notice um, because he was supposed to fight Kemwella Kirk and Kirk withdrew from the fight. So I'm going to look back into the. Uh, the makings of that fight a little bit more, but we've got a guy in Ribovich here, never been finished before as a professional. Only loss was his UFC debut. So you can kind of write that off a little bit. Um, we do have some losses on the side of Els Brunner. He has three losses via unanimous decision on the Brazilian regional scene. Uh, two of them at future MMA to Dennis Silva and Gabriel Santos. Gabriel Santos is a, uh, a UFC fighter who was knocked out by David Onama and lost a close split decision to Lerone Murphy. So I think that this is a great point from our guy, Mark in the chat. So shout out to Mark says Brenner was a plus 500 dog and a plus 500 dog in his fights. Now he's a favorite market over correction. I'll be playing Esteban Rivovics and the over one and a half rounds. That seems fair enough to me. Uh, Dixon saying recency bias at its finest. Also, Els Renner, Shootbox Diego Lima, very popular gym. A lot of people want to bet with them, and it's in Brazil. So for me, this is a potential live underdog situation. I agree with people regarding their market read here, where a guy goes from being plus 500 twice in a row to being um, you know, a favorite. That seems like a huge correction. Both of these guys are young. Both of them have similar frames. There's not a massive advantage that I'm seeing on paper. And Els Brunner has a brawling style. He tends to invite a lot of volatility into his fights. Ribovic's, like I mentioned, never been finished. Neither one of these guys has been. So the overs um, seem seem very possible. Good stuff, guys. I think that the chat is uh, sharp on this one. And I think that you guys had a lot of interesting points. So with that being said, let's move along here to the next fight, guys, where we got Daniel Marcos taking on Victor Hugo. And we've got... Victor Hugo making his UFC debut in this spot, guys. Um, we also have making their UFC debuts on the card, Eduarda Mora and Kawe Fernandez. So stay tuned. Like I said, if you guys are interested in some uh, you know, content that isn't tied specifically to the matchup that they have this weekend, but is more so about their style, about how they fight, about what they could bring to the UFC, uh, I'm going to make a video about that later on this week including our guy Victor Hugo here who's taking on Daniel Marcos. But for this video, we're just going to focus on the matchup at a first look like we always do on this show. And I think that Daniel Marcos is a guy that, you know, people are definitely starting to get behind. He just got the split decision win over in England over Davy Grant. If my memory serves, that was in England. Yes, it was. So got the win over a Englishman in England. Uh, well done. Got the split decision there. Very close fight. You look at the Simon Oliveira fight, I believe he was an underdog going into that matchup. Simon Oliveira, guy that hasn't really proven a, a whole lot at the UFC level, 
Brandon Lewis gets the win via decision there. Um, Brandon Lewis is a guy that is now six and three overall as a professional um, was brought back uh, to contender series after losing to Mo Miller. So uh, unfortunately he's been on hard times in his career. It was a good win on contender series for Daniel Marcos, but now riding a lengthy win streak here, a 21 fight win streak dating back to his amateur run. And he is a favorite here um, against a short notice Victor Hugo, who just signed with the UFC. I believe he fought on week nine of the Dana White contender series. So this is a guy that is making a quick turn, but I want to give him a shout out. This man came back and commented on my Dana White contender series breakdown. He said, thank you guys so much for the comments. And when you looked at, uh, oh, here we go. We got a comment from our guy, Just Win Baby, as well. He said they underestimated and undervalued him. Now intelligently lining Brenner. You can't expect him to be plus 300 every fight now, especially he's shown he's for real and belongs. Makes sense. Um, so I, I see that as a possible um, explanation. But I also think, you know, the last time out, he probably should have been um, a dog as well. You know, he did almost get knocked out in that fight, uh, but he is a dog. He doesn't want to quit. He wants to keep fighting. So guys that are going to be dogs and fight for your money, I think either side in this fight at plus money would make sense um, on the Brenner fight. Uh, but I also think that, you know, Ribovich is a guy that also has a lot to prove here. He is an Argentinian fighting in Brazil, but I think that he's going to go out there and scrap, make it a very honest fight. So it uh, should be an interesting one, but I'll see what tape has to, uh, has to uh, tell me on that one. But looking at Victor Hugo, another guy who's on a very lengthy win streak here. So somebody's win streak has got to go. 13 wins in a row for Victor Hugo, and he's putting it all on the line on short notice. He said on the Contender Series, I don't know if I'm going to uh, knock him out or if I'm going to submit him. I'll decide on the night, right? Con uh, what was it? Uh, Michael Bisping said, he's like Conor McGregor. If he can talk half as good as he could fight, then he's going to be a, a star. I think that Victor Hugo has a lot of the right elements. Um, for somebody to avoid making that blunder in their UFC debut. What do I mean by that? He's got a lot of experience. I noted it on week nine of the contender series in my write-up. Um, this is a guy with 28 professional bouts. I mean, he's got a lot of experience under his belt outside the UFC, just four losses in his career, two losses by knockout, one loss via submission, one loss via decision. Um, but again, you look back and he's been fighting for a very long time. Hasn't lost since 2014. So these are two guys that have been on very long win streaks. And I'll tell you the truth. I thought Victor Hugo was going to win that fight and win it inside the distance on contender series. But the one thing that scared me is his cardio because he does a lot of big actions. He does a lot of things that are um, very uh, heavy energy expenditures, right? And you just got to call it like it is. If it doesn't work out, um, Mike Tyson used to say, you can fight for the knockout or you can fight for the decision, right? If you go out there and just look for the finish, look for the finish, look for the finish, could be a problem for you, right? But on the other hand, if you're constantly threatening the finish, you can win moments, you can win decisions that way. And also you can keep people from opening up with their offense. You can put them on the back foot. You can put them in some danger. So I think of Victor Hugo as an extremely dangerous fighter. You know, Daniel Marcos never been finished. So that's the feather in his cap here uh, for me. You know, he's never been finished. He's going against a guy that has been finished before. Um, but his last fight out against Davy Grant, he didn't win it by a wide margin. You know, he didn't go out there and, and dominate. And now he's got to take on a Brazilian in Brazil, and he's got to take on a guy that has power in both hands. He's fought as high as 165 pounds. He's done very well. He's got dangerous and dynamic kicks. He can switch it up, go to the head. He can switch it up, go to the body. He could spin. He could throw them from stationary stances. He could switch stance. So he's a tricky, awkward guy on the feet, 
and on the mat. Look at what he did last time out. I mean, that knee bar was phenomenal. Uh, I could just disclose to you guys, I'm not a very good, um, you know, knee bar practitioner, right? I go to jujitsu all the time. I don't very frequently even attempt knee bars, but I saw what this guy did to set up his knee bar and it like opened a little pathway in my mind. I was like, man, that's a really clever way to set up that figure four. And then I almost secured a knee bar at practice the very same day. This guy, Victor Hugo, has a sensational leg lock game for MMA. I think that when you look at most MMA fighters, because of the brutal knockouts we see when guys go for, um, you know, silly leg entanglements. And also, if you guys have seen it, it's like trending on Twitter right now. But the video of a guy going for a leg lock and injuring himself and having to tap going for a leg lock offensively in MMA. Uh, So, again, leg locks in MMA don't have the, the best track record. but this guy is very, very slick with them. He's got good heel hooks. He's got good uh, manipulations. He was looking, I believe, for a calf slicer at one point in his uh, contender series bout and was able to secure a back take off of that as well. So that last win over Matias Torres Cote, uh, he was another guy, very good professional record on paper, um, looked like the goods, uh, had a lot of the right uh, resume and everything and really wanted to win. But Hugo was just better. He just had better skills. And even though Coat went out there, put pressure on him, I think that this is the point that Dixon makes is very wise. Hugo looked like he was starting to slow down on contender series before he got the sub. And I do agree with that. But I also think contender series kind of brings a certain element out of people, right? When you look at how people approach contender series, they're looking for a finish. This guy is 24 and four, right? He's already had a million fights. He can't afford to just keep fighting on the regional scene. He needs to get moved up in the ranks. He needs to make more money, right? That's why he goes from fighting, you know, uh, on the ninth week of contender series to now being right in the UFC before a lot of other people. Eduardo Mora, who's also debuting on this card was on week two of the contender series. So you just see that there's, um, you know, a very expedited schedule for this guy. I want to see Victor Hugo come in here and put on this on a display and make this an honest fight. I hope that his cardio can hold up because if it does, I think we're getting a absolute back and forth scrap. And I think that the line is a little too wide. You know, uh, I think that Victor Hugo, extremely dangerous fighter. Um, Shout out to Liam versus Hugo. I take Liam via split decision 100%. Um, I hope you're talking about um, a pure grappling match, my brother. I I try and use my exit the system uh, fundamentals. But yeah, I I think that uh, in the striking match, I would get absolutely hosed by Victor Hugo. Um, He's got big power, man. And like I said, I've seen this guy compete as high as 165 pounds and brutally knock somebody out very quickly. Uh, he's got tremendous power. So I think that the one thing that stood out to me about Victor Hugo on contender series, this guy's not intimidated by anybody. He's very confident. He will fight anybody right now on a dime. So I think Victor Hugo is going to go out there and make it an honest scrap. Um, but I think that Marcos has proven a slight bit more. So could I see Marcos being minus 125, minus 130, never been finished for sure thing. but. I think, um, you know, maybe this guy, Victor Hugo, at your own peril, man. I think he's a very, very dangerous guy um, with a lot of different ways to finish fights. I think he's crafty from a lot of different positions. So just take that for whatever it's worth. Next up, we've got Eliseo Zaleski Dos Santos, easy dose, as I like to call him, taking on Renat Fakhradinov. And I've had uh, I've had sad stories with both these guys, man. I, I bet Elize Zaleski Dos Santos bigly against Benoit Saint-Denis. I've never lost a bet on a Benoit Saint-Denis fight, except for fight doesn't go to decision. Ooh, that one was gross, man. Um, 
you know, I thought that that fight should have been stopped 10 times over. Easy Dose beat the tar out of him like I expected that he would. The thing about Easy Dose that's a little bit scary, 24 and 7, right? He's on a two-fight win streak at 36 years of age. Um, the thing that's scary is just that he's a little bit long in the tooth, right? He's an older guy. He's been around for a long time. Uh, he's had a couple cancellations as well. He withdrew from a bout with Munir Lazez that I would have favored him um, you know, pretty heavily. He got the split decision win over Abu Bakar Nurmagomedov as a minus 105 pick'em type price. Um, so overall, even that Muslim Salikov lost back um, at UFC 251, split decision could have went either way. Um, the leech knocking him out still is like a, a standout, like outlier type performance for him in terms of an underperformance. Um, the leech is a good fighter, but went to China and got knocked out there. Um, pretty tough spot for him. Luigi Vendramini, I believe, took his back, gave a little bit of a scare there when he was a massive favorite. But he knocked out Sean Strickland, the current champion. Other than that, guys, he has not lost um, since Nicholas Dalby 2015. So he lost to the Leech in 2019. He lost to Muslim Salikov in 2020. But he went on a run. Omari Akhmedov, Lyman Good, Max Griffin, Sean Strickland, Luigi Vendramini, Curtis Millinder. That's a great run of wins. Um, so this guy is very dangerous. You know, he's a very serious fighter. 10 and 3. I remember somebody uh, on, on Twitter, I accosted them um, probably a month ago or so I'll retweet it. Uh, so if you guys aren't following me at Liam picks fights, I will make sure to, uh, to, to retweet this later. But this guy was telling me Eliza Zaleski's a bum. Right. And I was like, yeah, 10 and three in the UFC and knocked out the current middleweight champion. What a, what a bum he is. Right. Um, people just say things, right. They don't fact check themselves at all. So yeah, wins over Benoit St. Denis will age pretty well. You know, uh, the Alexei Konchenko win, I think he sent that guy packing from the UFC as well. So this guy has put on, very good performances. Last time out, I tried to fade Renat Fakradinov. <clears throat> that did not turn out well for me. I'll tell you guys, Renat Fakradinov absolutely butchered Kevin Lee. It's one of the most brutal beatdowns of the year. One of the worst bets I've ever placed. Um, quite confident in saying that. So when you look at it, why was it such a horrible bet? Was it just because I lost? No, I mean, I've made plenty of bets that lost. Talia Santos plus 450 against Valentina Shevchenko. Make it again tomorrow. But that bet on Kevin Lee, I think I got plus 175, and Kevin Lee looked like he was plus 1,000 about 60 seconds in. He was slow. He couldn't move. Uh, his mobility was shot, and he looked like an old, aged fighter. Uh, and I, I hate, hate to say that, right? But uh, it's just a reality. You know, Kevin didn't look like he could move anymore. He looked stuff, stuck in the mud. He looked stiff, and he was getting hit cleanly, um, just getting blasted, right? Renat Fakhradinov had a much more competitive, honest fight with Andreas Michalidis than he did uh, with Kevin Lee. So that, that told me all I needed to know, but I think you look at how that win against Brian battles, aging, it's aging just fine. You know, he absolutely dominated Brian battle who I've been making money on ever since because people have been low on him because he got audited. But I, I just feel like Brian battle, good fighter, disciplined, durable, tough, doesn't want to quit. And Renat absolutely rinsed him, you know, just took him for his lunch money in each and every round. So, um, I think that Renat can be a real problem for people when he gets on top. You know, if the fight stays on the feet, I think it's going to be a lot more honest. But this is another guy who's on an insane win streak, nine-fight win streak for Renat Fakhradinov, um, according to uh, Tapology. But it looks like it's way longer just by my eyeball. So I think that they're wrong about that unless they're counting uh, amateur results. So he did lose an amateur fight in 2018. Uh, that would interrupt the record here. But yeah, he's a guy that, has wins over Eric Spicely, uh, Alberto Uda, Andreas Michalaitis, Brian Battle, and Kevin Lee. 
all UFC level names. So it's not like he's not a proven guy, but Zaleski is just a good fighter to be a huge plus money underdog against somebody. Um, let's go back and look at how he's performed against the number in the past. Fakhradinov, 3-0 as a favorite, 51.5% ROI. Easy dose, 6-2 as an underdog, 39.4% ROI. So both of these guys have been overperforming expectations. They've been doing a great job against the number, and they've done a good job in these previous odds categories. So it's going to be a really tricky fight for me to call. Uh, but think about it like this. You got a lot of parlay fodder that's Brazilian on this card, and then you've got a a parlay fodder that is Renat Fakhradinov, right? Not a very Brazilian dude. He's rolling in with Abus Magomedov in the crew, right? So they're flying him out to Brazil. Um, this is a different matchup. And I do think that that would make me a little bit more um, hesitant to back somebody at Chalk when they're not the hometown guy, when they're not, um, you know, all the way there. But I do think that Renat has skills. I think he's a really dangerous guy. I don't know if I want to stand in front of him either. Could just be a pass fight for me. But Zaleski, one of my all-time favorites in the UFC. I love the guy's style. Capoeira, Capoeira. He's a fun guy to watch. He does crazy stuff when he's fighting. Um, and I just, I like him to create some chaos and some volatility. So should be fun. But he hasn't done that great against the Russians. As we leave off, we'll just talk about, he got the win over Abu Bakar. Uh, he lost to Muslim Salikov. And he beat Alexei Konchenko. He beat Omariak Madoff. Did he get anybody else? Yeah, so not so bad, actually. He's, he's had mixed results against the uh, against the Ruski. So we wish him very well. Uh, easy dose, but he's got uh, a handful in the Gladiator, Renat Fakhradinov. So should be a hell of a fight. And shout out to Dixon, says Zaleski off the juice, not the same dude uh, versus someone younger and athletic. Here's the one thing I will say. I'm with you if face-offs uh, show that he's not on the sauce. We're back in Brazil, baby. We never know. Uh, this guy could show up looking like a million dollars. So I think that's uh, a space that you're going to want to watch. Look at the face-offs there. But I do agree. In the early going, I think that uh, Renat is probably getting takedowns. But the question is, can Zaleski offer anything off his back uh, that will make Renat worried? You know, so far, you know, nobody's really done that. And Despite having a black belt, I've seen Zaleski in some really dangerous spots. So I'm going to wait and see how this line moves throughout the week. But the one thing I may look to get on would be Renat Fakhradinov by sub. Uh, Zaleski hasn't been subbed in an eternity, uh, and he is a black belt. But Guillerme Bamba got him in 2013. He's been submitted uh, on more than one occasion. So he's 3-2 and two career to the sub. He's getting a little bit older. He could get clubbed and subbed in this spot, or he could get physically exhausted by Renat. So maybe the ends by sub could be tricky as well because I do think Renat's going to force uh, some grappling. So good good stuff. Appreciate everybody who's rocking with us in the chat. Now I'm going to take a sip of the coffee as we move to the next one. God bless. Here we are, folks. We got Vitor Petrino, 9-0, taking on Modestus Bukowskis, 15-5, and the Baltic Gladiator. Wow, isn't that interesting? Renat Fakhradinov is the Gladiator, and I believe – yeah, Modestus Bukowskis, the Baltic Gladiator. So we got two gladiators in a row here. Um, and we've got Vitor Petrino Ikao. Uh, I actually have no idea how to pronounce his nickname, but it's I-C-A-O uh, with accentation. So I will look for a serious pronunciation here um, on, uh, on Vitor Petrino's nickname. But he is another CM system fighter. So same gym that is listed for Alizi Zaleski Dos Santos in terms of affiliation. And I was very happy um, about 
the uh, the Vitor Petrino result last time out. You know, I called Vitor Petrino by sub three or decision in that last fight. And the reason I called that was because you look at that fight against Anton Durkali, Anton Durkali knows how to grapple, right? He knows how to wrestle. That's kind of his bread and butter. He's gone for 11, 12 takedowns, I think it was, against uh, Dos Santos in his contender series fight. So Anton Turkali knows how to grapple. He's grappled with Gustafsson and had, you know, grappling matches purely in his life. He trains with good guys in Sweden. And this guy's physicality just shut down everything from Turkali. I bet Turkali by sub there because I was like, yo, Petrino is not as high level as Turkali on the mat. But watching him win those scrambles, watching him out-muscle and out-maneuver a guy like Turkali and do it for the 15 minutes when Turkali tends to be a guy who comes back on late. You know, he tends to lose the first round like he did against, I think it was Ibo Aslan regionally. And then Ibo Aslan starts to tire out. He goes, gets the win, gets the finish. When you look at a guy like Vitor Petrino, he's an athletic hoss. He's a freak specimen. The guy can't be moved around easily at light heavyweight, period, point blank. I don't know a guy who could easily move this guy uh, at 205. Adolfo Bellato, um, you know, not a bad fighter, right? And he has knocked him out twice. And Adolfo Bellato just got signed to the UFC, just cast us a nice ticket to end off the contender series season, right, with that plus money. But Adolfo Bellato is a guy where, you know, he still makes a lot of mistakes in his fights. He still can leave himself vulnerable, but he's normally got a good enough chin to get through it. He's normally got a good enough heart to get through it. He wants to win. You could tell when you watch him fight. It wasn't enough against Vitor. He's just too athletic. He was too much of a freak. Even when he hurt Vitor, Vitor was able to get back up and get back in his face. The opposite was not true, right? And he was able to just do more damage. And so I've seen this guy take shots, go through adversity, keep fighting, right? On the other side, Modestus Bukowskis, he's a tough guy. You know, I take my hat off to Modestus. He went out there and he's earned it the hard way. Zach Pauka. I thought was a winnable fight for him. I said as much at the time. I believe I picked him outright in my Roto Grinders article. Tyson Pedro, I don't know that I expected him to win there, but Tyson Pedro is a guy that has been consistently unreliable uh, in that parlay type range. And so he lost there against Modestus. Someone understandable. Prior to that, he got the wins on the Cage Warrior regional scene, but he got his knee blown out by Khalil Roundtree. He lost a split decision, close fight that a lot of people thought he probably deserved the nod against Mihol Oleksiejczyk. And uh, Jimmy Crute, you know, got knocked out in the first round by a guy who's really, really struggled in the UFC. Andreas Michalaitis, that win, guys, if you watched it, he like fell out of the octagon. It was a completely insane result. Was he probably going to win that fight? Sure. But it, it just, we didn't really get a fair accounting there. He kind of just fell out of the cage. So what do you think the odds would be for Bellato versus Bukowskis right now before the Petrino fight? That's an interesting question, my man. It's an interesting question. I'd have to look at uh, Bukowskis' ground game in a little more depth. Doesn't seem like he's been submitted since 2016. But again, you don't really see a ton of grapplers on his ledger here. Tyson Pedro may be one of the better grapplers among them, but he gassed out badly in that fight. I believe he won the first round cleanly, if my memory serves. Zach Pauga, I just don't think very highly of, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, no disrespect. It's not a guy I rate. Um, as as very uh, long-standing in the division. And now, looking back, he's been knocked out a number of times. You know, I think Vitor's got a lot of power in his hands. Um, I think that Bellato, he's prone to make a lot of mistakes. So he would probably be a minus 150 favorite against Bukowskis. That would be my guess. But I don't know. That's an, that's an interesting one, Dixon. I'd have to give that some more thought. Um, 
just top of the head, though, I feel like Bellato probably has more pass there. I think he could win a decision. I think he could win by knockout. I think he could win by sub. Um, and I think Modestus would probably have to win a decision or, or win by knockout in that spot. Be kind of surprised if he leveraged any grappling success over a guy like Adolfo Bellato. But with that being said, Vitor in this spot, man, I think he's got more power than Modestus. Uh, I think the cardio is probably close. I, I probably lean ever so slightly to um, to the Modestus Bukowskis, uh cardio. But Vitor, I just think, has way more freak athleticism. I think he could probably get a, on top of Modestus and hold him down. But I gotta re I gotta revisit the tape. Long and short of it is I don't know enough about Modestus's grappling game to confidently back Petrino here. But I think that Petrino more athletic, more margin for error, and I think I would be not surprised if he finished uh, Modestus at some point in this fight. Despite Modestus being tough, I just think that Modestus his chin is a little bit questionable, and I also think that Petrino. Is coming into his own in terms of his skills. Every time out, I expect to see a better product from this guy. Uh, and I think he's got a lot of the raw physical athleticism and tools that you can't really um, coach into somebody, right? Like you can coach a lot of the problems out of Petrino's game, but you can't coach somebody to be a freak athlete. They just are or they are not. Um, shout out to Dixon says, Liam, here's a sneaky angle. He's looking for the Yambag special like my guy, Uncle Lou. Uh, point deduction plus 2,000. Bukowskis, I feel, is guaranteed to be throwing the Travis Brown-style elbows to the back of the head when Petrino tries takedowns. DQ is live. Interesting. I don't know if uh, our guy Petrino would be one to lay down and, and take a DQ, but it's a good point. It's a good question. We've got Ken Knowles says, Liam, have you shared your thoughts on the boxing bat? Absolutely incredible performance from Francis Ngannou. Ken, what I have to do is I have to rewatch that fight in full. I watched live updates on Twitter, re-scroll, 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 because I was on a train. Uh, I couldn't even stream the fight. And it was a great sweat to watch alongside uh, and see, oh my God, he knocked him down and all this stuff, the live updates. I got to watch the footage itself from what I have seen. My hat is off to France. It's just a phenomenal job. What he was able to do, get the knockdown, uh, you know, represented the sport well. Nothing more you could really ask for from Francis. In terms of the corruption, you know, kind of just the way that it is. Uh, I've heard from people I trust about boxing that, you know, Tyson Fury clearly won the fight on the rounds, but the story of the fight, the narrative of the fight goes to Francis. I want to judge for myself. I haven't seen it yet. So shout out to Ken Knowles. Uh, great point. Great bringing that up. And uh, I think that, it's just a great moment for combat sports when you have one of these crossover fights and they're not a complete disaster. People don't feel like they got taken for their money. And um, I think that Francis Ngannou just continues to impress, to surprise, and overperform as an underdog. I bet him plus 130 on the way out the door against Cyril Ghan and took that money while it was still green. So shout out there. Um, I think that you know Francis Ngannou did a hell of a job, and I'm glad you asked that question. Um, good to bring up. Next up, guys, we got Angela Hill taking on Denise Gomes here. And this is a tricky matchup. You know, um, Denise Gomes building a lot of momentum in the UFC. I have not given her enough credit. I've given her short shrift. I thought she was going to lose that fight to Yasmin Waregi. Waregi is a girl that I had pegged as, you know, very talented, very skilled. Had a lot of things that I thought were worth building on. But her chin is becoming a bit of a liability. Knocked down more than one time um, in the UFC already. Uh, putting her chin on the line a lot. And Denise Gomes made her pay, you know, just right off the rip, got to her. One of the fastest knockouts you'll see in WMMA. She also walked down Bruno Brazil, violently beat her up, got to finish there. Really, really good stuff um, from her in that spot, you know. But Bruno Brazil, very green, 
Uh, Yasmin Waregi, 10-0, undefeated fighter. This is a completely different ballgame, right? Angela Hill, 28 professional fights, most of them at the UFC level. Her UFC run, 10-13, and 13, so negative run overall inside the octagon. But when you consider the fact that she's had multiple runs with the promotion, she's had many split decision losses that could have went either way, and her recent wins are over Emily Ducote and Lupita Godinez, two young, relevant girls in the division that have been showing improvement and growth over time. You know, I think that for Emily Ducote, you know, she kind of exposed Emily Ducote, um, and, and I should have taken more account of that fact uh, because Emily Ducote looked fine in her last fight against Ashley Yoder, but she got exposed two fights in a row by Angela Hill and by Lupita Godinez. And Lupita Godinez, um, you know, lost a close, uh, hard-fought, but ultimately clear decision to Angela Hill. And I think that might've been on short notice, but in any case, she lost the fight. So you look in the past, Amanda Lemos split decision. That could have went either way. And that's the one that gives me the most pause here about fading Denise Gomes is if you guys rewatch that fight, I mean, the fact that Angela Hill didn't get knocked out is insane. You know, uh, Angela Hill took a clean kick to the face and went down. You know, she got dropped badly. She was wobbled. But she was able to recover, and it was really impressive, right? We've seen Amanda Lemos go on to fight for the UFC uh, strawweight title. So Amanda Lemos cracks. She has power. She knocked out Marina Rodriguez, but she had to split decision Angela Hill. And Angela Hill probably outworked her in that second and third round. So, um, you know, nice uh, performance from Angela Hill there. And a good performance, you know, when she started off down, when she started off in a real big hole, was able to come back, make it close. Here's the big problem for me, though, with the Angela Hill side. And I know a lot of really sharp guys that like Angela Hill um, this week. So take that for whatever it's worth. I'm going to do my own due diligence and see exactly what I see here. But I had Mackenzie Dern via KO last time against Angela Hill. I don't know what else to say, but it was that close. You know, it was like I thought it could have been stopped at many points in the fight. Angela Hill, very tough, very durable, really wanted to just hold on in that spot. Uh, and she did it, you know, she was gritty, but I'm telling you, um, you know, I think that there is a chance that we see Angela Hill get her chin cracked. So I feel like this is a Angela Hill decision, you know, split decision or a, uh, or a Denise Gomes KO, because I do think that Denise Gomes hits with a lot of power. And I think that she is going to try and walk down Angela Hill, probably take a lot of clean shots in the process. But I've seen Angela Hill get wobbled and rocked and, and really badly hurt before. Seen her get beat up by Mackenzie Dern in her last fight, take a lot of damage in that spot without quitting. So, oh, shit. We got Pepe Silvia, one of the sharpest in the game. Hot take of the week. Angela Hill getting her first professional submission win. Oh, snap. So, there you have it. Uh, I think that that is a bold play, but I think that it is a possible play. Denise Gomes did get audited by Loma Luke Boonmi. We cannot forget. I did bet Rayanne Amanda um, when she was facing her on the Contender Series. So I have not been very high on Denise Gomes to this point. I do think she carries real power, more power than average for the WW, for the WMMA standard, excuse me. But I think that this is also a possible spot where skills and experience could pay dividends for Angela Hill in this spot. So fascinating matchmaking. I think it's a dogger pass on the money line, but like I said, Gomes KO, I think is very possible as well. Next up, we've got another UFC debutant, Eduarda Mora taking on Montserrat Conejo Ruiz. Speaking of big plus money KO props, this time the bookies did not rob me. I was able to cash Jacqueline Amarim by KO 
and that was plus 1600 last time out. Very good bet. Very happy with that one, how it turned out. Jacqueline Amarim, I didn't want to sell my stock on her after she lost her first fight. I said, you know, she didn't look good there, but I thought she spent her cardio too early trying to get the finish. I thought that she probably um, came close to, to getting it, but couldn't quite seal the deal. Had a cardio dump. I didn't think it was going to last. She came back out and looked very good in her last fight, and she beat the absolute tar out of this woman, and that was in August. Um, you know, Mora is a girl that signed on the Contender Series after uh, week two, and I'm going to give you guys just a little bit of color here. Um, you know, Jonathan Almeida, he went to the interview with her. He said, this is my teammate. You know, this is another girl that you got to pay attention to, Galpa de Luta. She's coming. She's getting better. She's she's real. Dana, you have to sign her. That's what she said. And when you look at, at uh, Mora and her background, she's gotten a lot of fights in very quickly. In a short amount of time, she's been very active. She's been working on her ground game. She's been working on her Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Purple belt on the mat. Last time out, I bet on her uh, on Contender Series via sub. I bet on the fight ends via sub. Uh, both of those were around the plus 300 mark and a little bit over in the case of Mora by sub specifically. We were able to cash there. Um, very good opportunity, I felt like, and you know, easy money in the end of the day. Mora has a vicious ground game, especially for women's MMA standards. She had a big size advantage in her last fight, and she leveraged it, guys. She took her to the mat. She beat her up from the top half guard. And by the 92nd mark, there's a massive golf ball-sized hematoma on the size of her opponent's head. Um, you know, she's beating her up to a pulp and then she eventually secures the submission, but this is an aggressive, violent woman. Um, and I think that Montserrat Conejo, unfortunately, it's just not UFC level. Uh, that's a personal opinion of mine. She does train with the, uh, Dallas Fort Worth, uh, I believe, or excuse me, uh, it's 10th planet Jiu Jitsu somewhere. Uh, I don't have my notes, uh, all in front of me, but I do have it written down. So People on the Patreon, y'all can refer back, but otherwise I will make sure I have that right for Thursday. In any case, though, she's just a girl that's training 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu. I think she trains mostly alongside of her significant other. Um, you know, I haven't been very impressed with her UFC game. I thought she was going to get audited by Amarimi. She absolutely did. You know, what do, what do we know about her? She's damn tough. You know, Conejo is tough as hell. When she got dropped by Amanda Lemos and went like face down, she tried to get back up, but she got stopped. Because she got hurt really bad. Her chin wasn't there on the feet against Lemos, who's got that power. How about on the mat? I thought Amarine stopped the fight in the second round. Referee wasn't interested in stopping it there. She beat the absolute tar out of her for the third round, looking for subs, looking for ground and pound. And again, this is only four months ago. She took an absolute hellacious beating, just like Angela Hill, you know. That's the one thing where I always want to see, did you get enough time to recover? Let's see how much time Angela Hill has taken off. So her fight with Mackenzie Dern was in May, right? So she's had five plus months to recover. She's given herself a little bit of that time. Montserrat Conejo got absolutely brutalized, um, you know, four months ago um, or less. It's just, I, I don't like that spot for her. Um, the UFC hasn't done her many favors. This is going to be a third Brazilian in a row um, for Montserrat Conejo. She beat Cheyenne Velismas, And I think that... Uh, I think that that was a spot that pissed off the UFC, right? Number one, all the drama, all the bullshit. I'll follow you home, bitch, spitting on each other and whatever the hell they were doing. It was just low class and, and not very good. Um, on top of that, the fight sucked the horn, right? And it was very low level. So you look at what has happened since. I think they're matching her up intentionally with girls that 
they want to put over with girls that they'd like to see advance. And they know that Conejo has a limited skill set. She's got the scarf hold, but she's tiny, guys. She's very small for the division. And Mora had a size advantage in her last fight. She's going to have an even bigger size advantage in this fight. So I think that this is going to be Mora's coming out party. Uh, Jelton Almeida said, please, UFC, put my friend Mora on the contract. Put my friend Mora in the UFC with me. Have her on the Brazil card. Jelton got his wish. So now let's see what happens. But I think that Eduarda Mora is going to get this fight to the ground. I think she's going to finish it uh, big time. Uh, shout out to free UFC bet picks uh, asking for the uh, little hand fighting gestures, my man. I appreciate you big time. Um, so Frey versus Ruiz after this fight, Apex co-main event to the moon, Pepe. I'm, I'm waiting for that announcement too. But she's one and two in the UFC right now. I think she's running that record to one and three. And I think she's getting finished. Um, you know, I'm going to wait and see what the prop lines look like. But I like Eduarda Mora. And I, I think that she is going to get the win. Lastly, but not leastly, we've got a lightweight bout that is kicking off the card, folks. And I want to just say a special thank you. We had that off week, guys. But everybody's still rocking with us live here. Um I really appreciate it. You know, we're doing our first look at this card. We're coming back with more great content later in the week, but I truly appreciate everybody that supports the content rocks with the work. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the sharpest chat in the game for keeping it active as we're rolling here. So if y'all have thoughts on this last fight, make sure you throw them in here now, but we've got Kawe Fernandez taking on Mark Diacasey. And if y'all have been watching, um, Kawe Fernandez, this is a fun guy. This is an interesting guy. You know, um, I don't think that he's had a bad fight so far. You know, a fight where I didn't think that this guy looked like he was a solid fighter. Uh, went out there against Luan Sardina. Guys, I think Luan Sardina is destined for the UFC one day. Uh, that guy looks serious to me. He looks like he knows what he's doing. He looks physical. He looks like he's got some talent. And you saw that Kawe Fernandez went out there and won a clean first round against this guy. Um, let's get 39 more likes on here. Appreciate that. That would be awesome. Um, and when we're looking at, at how he's fared, that last win, guys, against Felipe Douglas... That was a sensational win. That's the kind of thing that says, yeah, F the contender series, brother. You're getting the call right to the UFC. And this guy, Fernandez, one thing that I noted about him, he's very dynamic from close. You know, a lot of guys that are kickers, what do we always talk about? You need space to kick, right? I can't kick you if you're crowding me. So when we want to punch, oftentimes we got to get closer. When we want to kick, we got to get further away. When you look at a guy uh, like Kawe Fernandez, I think what he does very well is he kicks from the clinch, right? Sometimes guys have flexible hips. I, I think of uh, Chidi and Jikawani as a guy that fits a similar bill to this, right? How does Chidi and Jikawani tend to uh, do very well? It's when he's able to snap off a very quick kick that nobody even sees because it comes from so close and it comes so fast. I think that that is where we see Kawe Fernandez have a lot of his best success. He was a plus 220 underdog against his opponent, Felipe Douglas. Felipe Douglas had three plus times the professional experience that Kawe Fernandez had. But Kawe Fernandez was able to send him to the shadow realm. Brutal knockout. Knocked him out. Great finishing instincts. Followed up probably with a couple more shots than I think were even warranted. This guy is violent, okay? Kawe Fernandez beat the tar out of Luan Sardina, the guy that beat him in pro MMA. He beat him up in the first round and he kind of gassed out. But let's give some context there. That fight, he had taken two years off. So he fought in 2019 in a co-main event at 155 pounds, got the win, took two years off, fought Luana Sardina, an undefeated fighter, and he lost that fight. 
two years away, comes back to LFA, takes on a tough guy, tough fight, loses. And honestly, guys, the thing that was concerning is by round three, <clears throat> it was 10-8 round. You know, it was like, it was territory where Luan Sardina is not only winning, but now he's coming back to potentially stop the fight in round three. So Fernandez cardio did look suspect in that fight. But I go back and I watch the fight that he had with Eduardo Santiago, 4-0 fighter in 2016. His cardio checked out there, 15 minutes. He was able to get on top. He was able to get takedowns. He was able to look good striking on the feet. So was it a problem with going 15 minutes or was it a problem with coming back after two years being a little bit rusty? Because what we do know is that he fought in September of 2022 and he fought in uh, March of this year. So this guy's been a little bit more active. Now he's been standing there. He's fought once a year since 2021. Mark D. Casey, he's a guy that I've never been super high on. You know, um, fun skill set coming into the UFC. Definitely a proven guy at this level in the sense that he's seven and seven over a 14 fight sample in the UFC. That's plain impressive, right? 14 fights with the company. Not a lot of guys get to say that. Not a lot of guys get to do that. So I don't want to get out over my skis with Kawhi Fernandez here. But let's talk about where Mark Diacasey's at. Last two fights he lost. He lost to Michael Johnson. Michael Johnson's a guy that's very talented, great wins, clearly past his prime, and also has been past his prime for some time. You know, he's been bouncing back and forth between weight classes. He's really struggled to get his footing. He just got brutally, brutally knocked out in his last fight. He lost that fight. Joel Alvarez. And by the way, he lost that fight fighting like a dumbass too. He was fighting like uh, too loosey-goosey and just not very serious. Joel Alvarez, I don't even remember. I feel like there was a foul sequence at some point in that fight, but I just knew that eventually he would make a bonehead mistake and probably get finished in that fight. And that's exactly what happened. And bonehead mistake, whatever, foul, however you want to classify it, found a way to lose. Found a way to lose against Rafael Alves. Got kicked in the balls, got submitted instantly with a guillotine choke. And if that was the first and only time that it happened in his career, no problem. No skin off my nose. But it's not. He did the exact same thing against Dan Hooker. You guys can go back and rewatch that fight. Gets hurt on the feet. Bad shot. They call him the hangman for a reason. Hangman guillotine. Thanks for playing. Good night, uh, Irene. Rafael Faziv disciplined him in that fight. They had an honest striking fight for about two minutes. And then Mark Diacasey was afraid. In my humble opinion, I don't, I, again, I don't say this like, Oh, Mark Diacasey's this. I'm saying like in the fight, he was afraid of getting hit with clean shots from Fazeev. I would be too. And he really shut down his game. Didn't really offer as much offense in that fight as he probably could have or should have. Beat Lando Venata. Okay, win. Beat Joe Duffy. Guy who's no longer with the promotion. Lost to Nazrat Hakparas. Clean as a whistle. Uh, lost to Dan Hooker. Got finished in that fight. Lost to Jakar Close. He's just all right. His only finished win in the UFC is Timu Pakalin. Timu Paklin is not a UFC-level fighter. No disrespect, but that's just borne out by the data. I think he had two or three fights. Don't think he won any of them. Think he got finished in all of them, right? Think he got finished by an Azaitar brother. Let's put that in context, okay? Demir Hadsevich, barely a UFC-level guy. Vyacheslav Boroshev, I was there in person, guys. That fight is the death of fighting, right? I always talk about, I like fights. I don't like wrestling matches at a fight. I want to see somebody that's there to fight. Mark Casey was there to have a wrestling match that night. And it was honestly abysmal to watch. So what I'm looking at here is a guy in Mark Casey who has some skill, who's been around for a long time, who's got a lot of really high-level experience, but I don't think he's got the physical dynamism in the same way that he used to. I don't think he's as aggressive as he used to be. 
I don't think he's as violent as he used to be. I don't think he's as comfortable as he used to be. I think now he is a British wrestler, which just as a by and large rule, not super endorsing of that as a, a broad, um, you know, winning archetype of fighter. So what is, what is his exact game plan here? I want to hear from Mark a little bit, hear what he has to say about this matchup. Cause I think the way to beat Fernandez is to gas him out, keep yourself safe in the early going, not get hurt, not get clipped and then gas this guy out, take him down later on in the fight. But this guy has two wins by armbar, right? He's not a complete fish off of his back. Mark Diacasey, you know, has a penchant for getting guillotine, right? Not getting armbarred. But I just don't know that we're going to see this guy get clean takedowns without putting himself in some danger. Vyacheslav Borshev is not offering anything off his back. He's just not. Uh, the same could be said for Demir Hatsevich, not offering anything off his back. This guy... I think he's going to offer some stuff off his back. You know, you could accuse him of hanging out too long on his back, being too willing to play on his back at times, but that's because he's got a nasty overall guard bar series. And if you guys have watched, one of the things I like is that he, he will pinch both arms together. And then he just has an opportunity to spin his hips in either direction and look for the finish. And he's, he's quite good at it. So I think that he's a guy that's going to present problems, but here's the other thing. First fight in the UFC He's doing it in Brazil. He could have an adrenaline dump. I've seen him before come out there and start really high, but this is what I'm saying. Matt uh, says, Fernandez throws head kicks in the pocket. Yes, he does, but he knocks people out with those head kicks in the pocket as well. Um, he's a very dangerous fighter in my view. I feel like this fight um, invites a lot of volatility. I think if the Casey wins, he's probably going to have to grind out a decision like he's been used to doing, or he's going to have to look for a finish late when Fernandez starts to gas. I think Fernandez is going to come out here trying to be volatile, trying to create some opportunities for himself, trying to uh, land some big impactful shots with the head kicks. And I do think that Mark Diacasey, he shows a 6-0 and career record to the knockout. But I would not be surprised if that breaks in this fight. Um, I I'm just saying, when I look at, at his run, I think he got wobbled at times by Alvarez, if my memory serves. And again, I'm going to have to go... Uh, Oh, I love it, Matt. I love it. I thought you meant uh, he was throwing him from too close and he could get clipped. I think his leg dexterity is insane. He's one of the most flexible kickers I've seen uh, on tape because, again, he reminds me of the Njikawani's from the clinch to the head kick. That takes an insane amount of hip flexibility. Uh, so really like what I've seen from him overall. And the last thing I'll close out with, guys, Dia Casey uh, has been somewhat profitable um, in the UFC. Uh believe but as a favorite five and six not not performing how you'd want to see as a favorite so i think that this is a volatile spot and he's a guy that is a brazilian underdog taking on a guy who's been a ufc lifer but arguably is fighting for his job right back up against the wall here so what do we know about mark diacasey with his back up against the wall he's probably going to come out here and try and crotch sniff try and wrestle try and put this guy on his butt and try and you know just get 15 minutes off the clock, but I just can't feel comfortable with a guy like Mark D. Casey, uh, knowing what I know about how he's been, um, you know, on the receiving end of some big shots, how he's been trending in the wrong direction. How he's been a very average UFC fighter that has struggled to finish people. And I think Fernandez uh, is a guy that can win UFC fights, period, point blank. Uh, I think he's a really dangerous guy. So the danger is he could get controlled here. Uh, but if he doesn't get controlled for the full 15 minutes, I think he's a very serious threat uh, to knock out Mark Diacasey, to submit Mark Diacasey potentially with that armbar series as well. So I'm going to look into the uh, the line movement here. Shout out to our guy Fresh. I think that's a great point. Um, and we're rounding right into the 
one hour and 30 minute mark here, guys. So that's where we're going to wrap it up. We'll wrap up at 90 minutes exactly. Any other comments, questions that you guys want to fire off in the chat, make sure that you go ahead and do that now so we have a chance to address them. Want to shout out our guy, Mushroom MMA. Says, what's up, Liam? Sorry I'm late, brother. We'll catch it on the replay. Appreciate you being here at any time, my man. Uh, Mitchell Hooper says, hey, Liam, lines have been insane lately. Minus 600s for debutants we know nothing about. Insanity. Do you think it's because of the popularity of the UFC? A few years ago, that would be unheard of craziness. I think it's because there's a lot of people that bet seriously on the UFC. Um, and I think that the, the job of a bookmaker is not to make money on any one fight. It's to make money on the event. It's to profit on the event. So I think that sometimes people get too wrapped up in one individual line or one individual line movement, they need one of the minus 600s to fall apart. You know, they need one of the big favorites to fall apart. They don't need all of them. So some of them are there and they're totally legit. Some of them, they open at minus 240 and the public steams to minus 600, right? So every line means something a little bit different and they all have to be taken in context. But to your point about why debutants are coming in here at big chalk prices, it's because they're not fighting UFC fighters that are the creme de la creme necessarily. They're fighting UFC fighters that are maybe a little bit more enhancement talent, right? A little bit more contingent on if they, you know, lose another fight, they're not employed with the UFC anymore, right? And I think that that's kind of what we see with a Montserrat Conejo, for example. Um, so again, could she win and earn herself another contract? Sure, absolutely. But what does the UFC put these matchups together for? Right? I think at the end of the day, it's for business. And I don't think that they care about Montserrat Caneo. They've done a bunch of Mexican cards. I don't think they've ever tried to promote her. I don't think they've ever tried to build her up. Right, And when she got the win over Velismas, that just came and went and died as a news story. So I don't love the money line price. Right, So I like Mora a lot, but I hate betting chalk on WMMA. So don't bet it. Right, What I would say is pick your spots. If you like a side, but you don't like the money line price, look at the prop menu. Props aren't priced appropriately, then maybe you fire there. If they are, maybe pass on the fight. But you take that data and you move it forward to the next time and say, hey, you know, if she does lose this fight, great. Then I'll get a better price next time out. Or if she wins this fight, uh, you know, maybe she'll face a step up in competition where I'll get a better opportunity and a better line next time. But I think that as a, you know, sound, talented uh, BJJ purple belt with way more size and a lot of power um, and dexterity on top in terms of how she approaches the ground and pound and the submission game. I just feel like she's a real problem for Conejo. And that's what the, the odds makers can't give away free money, right? If you, if they leave minus 200 out there and everybody who looks into the fight says, man, Mora should kill her. It's going to be too much money. It's going to be too much liability. So instead minus 600 now they force you to play Caneo. They force you into it. That is the choice that you have to make as a gambler is, do I want to get sucked into this number or do I want to just find uh, the best opportunities? And for me, Mora was, an, uh, was a favorite, I think, of minus 300 or so on Contender Series. But what did I do? I bet the Mora subline and I bet the fight ends by sub, which was plus 290 for either woman. And they both were Brazilian women that had a grappling background. I was like, this is the kind of thing that I'll look to do on a big favorite is I'll look for a good price on a good bet, and that's it. Minus 600 on Mora could be true, but it's not a good bet. So I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to just force it into a parlay or anything like that. That is the epitome of my style. And so that's not going to mean that I'm always right or it's always optimal, but that's how I approach it. And there's many ways to make money in this. So I don't lay minus 600 WMMA chalk parlays. That's not me. 
but I do like Mora to win this fight. Uh, I think that she is a uh, deserved favorite, right? I think it makes sense. When I line the fight myself, I'll just give you guys a little personal disclosure. I have done a, a pretty in-depth write-up for this fight, way more in-depth than I do about some other fights. Let me see if I can screen share this with you guys. So we will present a screen share for a second. And guys, just bear with me because I'm absolutely horrible with technology. So you guys probably know this already. If you guys could see here, this is just a fraction of the work that I do on a weekly basis, but I thought that it was worth sharing here. Um, let me see if I could zoom in on this and see if that shows you guys a better look. So when I'm looking here, right, what I see is Kaneha one and two in the UFC, 10 and three as a pro, two out of three career losses inside the distance, both of those in the UFC. Mora making her UFC debut, nine and oh as a professional, eight out of nine wins inside the distance. She's a Brazilian in Brazil, and she checks all the anthropomorphic advantages. One year younger, 29 versus 30, six inches taller, five six versus five foot tall, six inch reach advantage, 67 inches versus 61. She's the local market fighter, right? So now we'll stop sharing our screen, but all that's to say, I did a lot of research, a lot of work to put together my own line, my own number, and I came up with minus 400. That is my personal line on Mora. So at minus 600, there is no value, but the comebacker on her opponent is about plus 400. That's not value either. In my view, you know, I think that a fair line is like minus 400 plus 400. So why do I say that? I think eight out of 10 times, it would make sense to say that Mora should win this fight. She has the ability to get the fight to the ground. She's the much larger fighter if the fight takes place on the feet. So that just seems like a very big uphill battle for Conejo. Conejo tends to be a grappler and a wrestler in her own right. Is she going to outgrapple and outwrestle the much larger fighter that's also a BJJ purple belt in Mora? I don't know about that. So for me, she could win if she gets takedowns. I think one in 10 times she gets takedowns. She could win if she uh, you know, lands a, a crazy shot on the feet or catches a meme submission. I think one out of 10 times she gets that finished. That's it. I, I think that's Kaneho's paths. I think Mora has more paths. So I think she has eight out of 10 ways to win the fight, right? That's kind of the way I capped it. I don't want to get granular to the minus 421. or what. Just keep it simple. I try and do a, a very simple cap in that way. But I can find different numbers, right? In the prop market, specific rounds, whatever it is. And if my numbers are different than the odds makers on those, then maybe I get involved there. But if there's not value, if there's not a perceived edge between what I think the line should be and what the line actually is, I don't bet it. That's the way I operate. That's the way I perceive value uh, in this sports betting game. So I hope that this has been educational for some people. I hope that you guys got value um, from this breakdown. I want to let everybody know that there will be more content coming your, your way from this channel, including information specifically about these debutantes. So I want to do a little bit more of a deep dive on our uh, featured debutantes, Victor Hugo, Eduardo Mora, and Kawe Fernandez. Stay tuned. That's going to be on the channel a little bit later on, as well as bets and banter, all the content that you're normally looking forward to for a UFC. So thank you guys all very much for the support. Make sure if you're not subscribed to the channel right now, drop a like as we close up shop here today. And if you're not subscribed to us on podcast platforms, make sure that you take advantage of that as well. Um, 
you know, there's no ads on the podcast platform. So if you guys uh, are inundated with ads or whatever, then that's another way to listen to this show. And I appreciate the support. Drop a five-star review if you feel so inclined. But with that being said, guys, God bless you all. Good luck on all your bets. Come back later in the week because we're going to have all the same fun again. Thanks, everybody. See ya.